This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, hi everyone. Allow me to welcome David Mendel once again to the Pollock Theater. As I said at the beginning, David Mendel is executive producer and showrunner of Veep and a great admirer of Billy Wilder, uh, whose film Some Like It Hot we're discussing today. So to begin, I, I listened to a recent interview with you. Oh, Lord. I know. It was good. <laughs> it was good. Where it said you, you find your approach, that in your approach to comedy, you often look to the past to find inspiration and ideas. What do you admire most about Billy Wilder, uh, his style as a director, as a writer? Um, boy, uh, I guess maybe I should have thought you'd ask that question. Oh, um, we can come uh, back. No, no, no. Um, uh, I guess I, when I look at it, I guess there's such a timeless quality to it that even though, you know, there's a notion, and uh, this is the first time my, my kids were seeing it, they're uh, eight and nine years old, and there's, uh, and I think at least one of them liked it, um, and uh, I think there's a notion that when you watch, quote unquote, an old movie, that it's going to seem old, it's going to seem dated, and, you know, obviously some of that is fixed because he was sort of making this movie in, I guess, whatever, the 60s, but was making this movie about 1929. So already you're sort of mixing up time. But there is a timelessness to it in that you could sort of say, you know, perhaps in a different version, this would is something that could have been made very recently. And yet a lot of the jokes play and are sort of uh, just sort of, as I said, timeless. And I think that's something that really sort of speaks to me. So what's your favorite scene and why? Um, no, I know. Scene. It's always hard, and I'm going to pick one that I think if... Because uh, I, I read that uh, thing you wrote in the book, and I think it's one of your favorites as yeah, well. Um, that moment of the sort of the post-boat and the post-tangoing, um, where they're kind of... Uh, uh, Daphne's laying on the bed with the maracas and he comes up the window in the, the, the full outfit and then Sugar comes in. And that whole sort of sequence sort of uh, really sings to me. Yeah, no, the pacing of it is so great. And the swish pan between the two couples. The swish pans are incredible. It's actually something we stole. Um, I don't know if anybody ever saw. We did a, uh, a uh, sort of after Curb sort of ended the last time, but before it's restarted now, um, we did a little movie on HBO with uh, Larry David called Clear History, and I don't know if anybody saw it, but in it, um, there's sort of a, a section where basically we sort of stole the swish pan from Some Like It Hot so that you have Larry, who is talking to his friends about how this woman has fallen clearly in love with him. It's the wife of his arch enemy. And basically, you're sort of swish panning between him going, I think she's in love with me. I can marry her, and then I can steal all their money with her, with her husband, incredibly in love, deeply in love, and him telling her he's dying of cancer. And we sort of are finding out, A, that she loves him, and B, what a good guy he is. And we sort of stole the swish pan for that um, because it's sort of perfect. Yeah, yeah. I was, um, as many people I think in the audience know, Wilder was unique among Hollywood directors for never filming a script he hadn't written himself, which gave him unusual artistic control. But that control was in part because he had thoroughly, he knew the conventions and knew how to work around them. Um, and I wanted, wonder if you talk a little bit about your own work on television and the conventions and how you work well, around them. Well, I don't pretend to put myself in, in certainly Billy Wilder's category, but I do think there's a slight element that I sort of share, which is um, I sort of became a director for sort of similar reasons, mm -hmm. which is to say um, 
I sort of, I started directing um, to basically film my own stuff. And for lack of a better word, if any of you are writers and sort of the, the writer's ego, which was basically, I started directing to stop directors from ruining <laughs> my stuff. Um, it's sort of a classic answer uh, in, right. in Hollywood. And I think Wilder was sort of the same of basically wanting his scripts shot the way he saw them. And I certainly, I guess, I, I certainly think Billy Wilder has a style and it's wonderful. He, although he never claimed to have a style, I certainly don't proclaim to have any kind of real style as a director, but trying to get the jokes on screen in a way that I think they should be the right way, which is something that all writers worry about. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to just kind of circle back to something you said about sure. how it seems really modern. Um, and I had written that, you know, even though this is more than half a century old, the film re- remains kind of very modern, uh, with Monroe trying to become a trophy wife, uh, Curtis faking wealth to seduce her, and Lemon also debating becoming a trophy wife. <laughs> so, and, and yet overall, the film is really refreshingly non, non-judgmental about sex. Um, can you tell us what you admire most about the film's treatment of sexuality? Um, I mean, there's something wonderful about just the pure fluidity of sort of, it both pokes fun at classic sort of male and female roles and sort of identifying them as such, and yet it allows all the characters to kind of go in and out of them without even worrying about it, and obviously capped off by, you know, arguably the greatest line in the world, which is, you know, at the end there, um, you know, and, and you can sort of, obviously it's a throwaway line, but you can read into it, and it's sort of, you can, you can, you can sort of embrace all aspects of uh, same-sex sex marriage and, uh, you know, gender roles and all of those kinds of things in one line, which is, I think, kind of amazing. And again, is as, impo- you know, as, as relevant, you know, right now as perhaps shocking maybe when he wrote it. You know, Billy Wilder, I think, in sort of the, his role in Hollywood was always seen as a little bit shocking, a little bit of an upstart. You know, there were those people that, you know, going back to things like, you know, Sunset Boulevard was seen as, you know, a slap in the face to Hollywood. And there was sort of an element of how dare you. And with some of Some Like It Hot, obviously a comedy, but, you know, considered incredibly, you know, I guess, what's the word, racy for its time. Yeah. I and, I, and I sort of love, and I guess maybe something else in my own work, you know, and I've been lucky enough to work with Larry David and then uh, with Julianne Veep, you know, shows that are always, I, I think, hopefully, you know, people here enjoy them, but there are definitely people that find them, you know, too offensive or too much. I guess too much would be a great word for it. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of Wilder in that also. Yeah. Well, uh, just to follow from that as well, yeah. like Wilder, at least in this film, he doesn't try to t- uh, tell the story by uh, looking to the headlines or recent events, like you said, set in 1929. But he instead returns to Hollywood history, returning as he often does, like in Sunset Boulevard, to stars and genres of the 20s. Um, could you say a bit about, more about your own approach um, as a writer? Um, you've said that the Trump presidency has transformed Veep into something resembling nonfiction, and yet you insist that it's not about current politics, but rather about power in general, how it operates. Um, how, do, how do you draw upon film and television history in crafting your scripts, or do you draw on um, um, we definitely, in terms of Hollywood history, we talk a lot about sort of favorite moments and sort of, you know, great little moments that sometimes often inspire things. Um, and it's not always a one-for-one transfer, but rather something like this. So, for example, um, 
we were talking about a scene the other day and a little bit of the inspiration for it. And it's a scene we've done other versions of as well. But um, if you, I don't know the last time people have seen uh, Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, if some of you are familiar with it. Um, obviously a great movie. And there's a very wonderful, wonderful, probably my favorite scene in there where um, Dr. Frankenstein, whatever, Frankenstein, yeah, exactly. Goes, goes to get locked in the room with the monster, and he makes it very clear, no matter what happens, do not open the door. I'm going in, do not open the door. And of course, he goes in, the monster goes, Ur! and he instantly is like, okay, open the door, open the door, open the door. It's very instantaneously. And we were doing something that sort of was a riff on that joke, and you sort of, we were, you know, we're not doing that joke, but at the same time, it was sort of a very kind of like, okay, whatever I do, we're going to do this, okay, we're doing the opposite. And so moments like that come up constantly. You know, I don't think we do as many direct things as sort of like the coin flipping gag or the grapefruit in the face, which are very much, you know, those would almost be called these days, those are like, they're like Easter eggs. And by the way, I think there's something sort of timeless about Billy Wilder with that, which is something like the squeezing the grapefruit in the face is, you know, again, we'd call it an Easter egg, you know, in a Star Wars movie when they play, you know, galactic chess again and everybody goes, oh my God, I recognize it. That's what those moments are. Um, And yet he was doing them, you know, 50 plus years ago, which is kind of amazing about Billy Wilder also. Yeah. Uh, one critic has said that Some Like It Hot depicts a male world that's so predatory that the heroes were literally forced to abandon their sexual identities in order to survive. I want to talk a little bit about gender in a moment, but this film also plays as much with gender as it does with genre. And I wonder if you say a little bit more about the genre in the film. One thing that, as I told you, as we were waiting out in the wings, um, with this series, I wanted to, we really wanted to emphasize that you know, the influence that uh, uh, of Weimar cinema in Hollywood was not just dark, sinister, noir kind of approach, but, but that you know, the German, uh, German-Jewish comedy really um, excelled and was brought to Hollywood to enormous effect. So um, I just wondered if you'd say a little bit about the play between you know, the gangster film and... Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, if you sat down and you've never seen it, and I was kind of watching uh, my, my daughter, you sit down and you're watching you know, a classic, really classic gangster movie, complete with cast, by the way. Exactly. Um, you know, we've got uh, uh, Spatz is played by... Uh, uh, Exactly, George Raft, and uh, sorry. Oh, and, they're going to... They're yeah, just yell them out, exactly. Um, and then, obviously, those, you know, the salutes to the classic gangster movies in there, but you are watching a, you know, classic Hollywood gangster movie that's as gangstery sort of as anything, although obviously undercut as we start to get going with mozzarella and whatever, but the, the, the setup, if you will, of sort of running bootleg liquor through a mortuary, we could pull that out of, you know, any kind of classic sort of, you know, black and white gangster movie. Obviously, Wilder himself is sort of undercutting it a little bit as we get going, but you're really rolling into it and really, like, you're not sure at first, which is sort of a wonderful thing. And he has the discipline, by the way, to go when the door first opens into the speakeasy and Sweet Georgia Brown is playing. He does not do what so many directors and probably modern movies would do right now, which is lock in and shoot our stars instantly and kind of go, there they are. Think about the discipline to not show you, you know, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon for even once that scene goes for quite a little bit. They're there. You can see Mm -hmm. them if you know you should be looking at them, but they're in very 
wide shots. We're not doing the classic, here are our stars, which is really a wonderful thing. Um, in terms of you know, gender, you know, it's something we talk a lot about and we, we deal with on Veep a lot. We talk a lot about it in the room um, in the sense that Selena, in some ways, became both vice president and ultimately president in some ways because she was a woman. She was put on the ticket as a woman. And yet that drives her crazy and really doesn't want to be particularly be seen as a woman except occasionally when it can help her career. But even when it helps her career, it drives her a little crazy. Um, and so obviously, again, a different sort of attack on gender. But, you know, even going back to both in Veep and even going back, dare I say, to Seinfeld days where, again, I was writing for Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but obviously a different character of Elaine, very much so while, you know, again, occasionally there were female plots about sort of, you know, sex and relationships, very much so, I can tell you in the writer's room, the, a lot of the best Elaine plots, to some extent, were really thought up as simply a plot, be it unto itself, like this is a funny plot, who should we give this to? Maybe we give it to George, maybe we give it to Elaine, it ends up with Elaine. Or dare I say, sometimes there were good George stories that just moved over to Elaine. And that's because she was truly one of the guys. And that really the stories were sort of, I guess for lack of a better word, sex-free. That they really, the gender did not matter. The overall horribleness of the four of them kind of was interchangeable if you think about it. Um, And again, a lot of that's very true for Selena, where these are stories about politics and power where she happens to be a woman as opposed to stories about her being a woman, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. Um, I just, just for the audience, if, if to, I'm not sure that you're aware, but in the Weimar cinema between 1919 and 1933 in Germany uh, produced a, a plethora of films that ranged from openly gay and lesbian features to films that questioned traditional representations of gender and, and sexuality. When this film was released in 1959, the production code was still intact, and it stipulated that sex perversion, its term for homosexuality, could not be presented or implied in a motion picture. Um, of, of course, over the course of the, of the 50s, filmmakers found ways to work around this stipulation, as we see in this film. What do you make of this film's representation of sexuality? Because there is some debate. I mean, uh, the writer, um, I.O. Diamond, said that you know, this, is a, this is a completely straight film. He says this, the whole trick in the picture is that while these two were dressed in women's clothes, their thinking process were at all times 100% male. We could question that. When there was a slight aberration, like Lemon getting engaged, it it became twice as funny. But they weren't camping it up. They never thought of themselves as women. And then Wilder um, reiterated Diamond's view, but concluded with a remark worthy of Osgood's uh, final, final famous line. And this is what Wilder says. He says, quote, But when Lemon forgets himself, it's not a homosexual relationship. It was just the idea of being engaged to a millionaire. You don't have to be a homosexual. It's security. Um, What's your view of the film's treatment of a central character's sexuality, and particularly the ending? Um, I, I don't necessarily think they're necessarily embracing homosexuality per se, but I think it's, and I never want to question what the writer is saying about his own work, because Lord knows, don't question me. But um, 
Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, jumping to another sort of beloved comedy for a second that also involves cross-dressing, um, that also always makes these lists, and a real f- other favorite of mine, uh, Tootsie, which I'm hoping a lot of you have seen, I think Tootsie is a little more upfront with the notion, um, and is really, you know, one of the big sort of character moments, which is that this sort of flawed male character, who perhaps is not great to women, learns at least a female perspective, or learns to at least think like a little bit like a woman by being inside the the character of Tootsie. And as he sort of says, you know, at the end, a little slightly maudlin, but still kind of great, you know, being a woman made me a better man with you because I was a woman with you, that kind of a thing. And I do think certainly, if nothing else, uh, and they are getting, that the two characters are definitely getting a female perspective, and that they are not always sort of men, and that you know, certainly with Jack Lemon, I think he sort of loses himself in the role of a woman. Again, I'm not, I don't have an answer as to what would have happened on the wedding night. Right. I don't particularly have an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- perhaps that's best, monster in your mind. But certainly, it's more than just secure excuse me, it's more than just security. He's losing himself in the, to me at least, he loses himself in the tango. He loses himself in the relationship and has come to sort of enjoy the relationship. And dare I say, um, with Tony Curtis, I think he begins to sort of see the other perspective of what it's like to be in the relationship with someone like himself. And in a way, be, look, because of the openness that he has as sort of girlfriends with Sugar, learns to sort of see that he's a, a you know, a, what a bad guy he is. And yes, he solves that problem by pretending to be a millionaire, which isn't exactly, it's bad in a different way, but certainly at least an attempt at being nicer, and yes, again, based on flowers, monies, and gifts, which is not necessarily what every woman wants, but again, there's a perspective to it that I think at least works. Yeah, watching it this time, something occurred to me that hadn't before, which, you know, we were talking about the film's wonderful repetitions and part of how the comedy works with these... Yeah, I mean, I was... Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but again, you know, when I look at my own, both the stuff I've been lucky enough to work on, but also stuff, you know... Uh, other things too, just my own writing. It, you know, the things were, that I really feel like I take from Wilder and are huge parts of Seinfeld, Curb, and even into Veep, the speed. The s- speed is something. If you ever watch, you know, just to go backwards, if you ever watch an episode of Seinfeld and then watch any of the shows from that same time period, and again, I'm, this is not against any of those shows, but, you know, in some of those shows, you know, you know, uh, Jim Belushi and his wife argue about taking out the trash, and they do so for 22 minutes, and in the single episode, maybe at the end of the episode, the trash gets taken out. You watch an episode of Seinfeld, it's like lightning speed compared to that. You see that in movies like, uh, obviously, Some Like It Hot, um, and then the mo- one of the movies we had actually talked about possibly showing but couldn't get a, a, a film for today, uh, One, Two, Three, which is a le- one of maybe Wilder's lesser-known films, but again, break breakneck speed, and then the callbacks and the, the recalls and the, the sort of the, the intertwining sort of almost double helix-like plots where, you know, things like Type O come up early in the beginning with Nellie Weimeyer and continue throughout the movie over and over and over, both as jokes, but also sometimes even affecting plot. Very Seinfeld, very Curb, and somewhat Veep, so, yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to no, go no, off on that. No, no, that's yeah. great, because I was thinking... As I said, this time what I noticed, or what struck me, 
was, um, okay, so there's a number of chases in the film, and at the beginning, the chase, and the end, and, and of course, at the beginning, they're having a terrible time as they're walking on the train um, station when they're high heels, and how do people manage this, and at the end, of course, they're running up and down stairs in high heels, and No, they've, another, they've learned, uh, yes, yeah, so they've it, adjusted, Another yeah. greatest scene is when he goes, you know, yes, let's go swimming, and, <laughs> and dons the, ba- uh, the bathing suit. Um, but what struck me was how um, Osgood, Joey Brown, and his, his, the way that his performance and his zowie and his whole, that uh, Jack Lemon kind of behaves that way in the train. I mean, making even the same kind of gestures or facial expressions, um, like suggesting that, I don't know, that a, a foreshadowing of their affinity. But I was just thinking that. No, I don't think it was an accident that Joey Brown, who was sort of, you know, a known Hollywood quantity for basically you put him in the movie to get that always on purpose. You know, he was one of those comedy character actors where you kind of were hiring him for exactly that. There wasn't going to be a a radical stretch. That's what you were getting on purpose. So I think he's very specifically, particularly cast as Osgood. And then, you know, you have sort of that young Jack Lemmon sort of, I think, probably absorbing a lot of that. So yeah, I don't think those are accidents. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. Um, Billy Wilder and Marilyn Monroe had a famously problematic working relationship. Um, seldom has any actress been trashed so thoroughly by her director and um, male co-stars as Monroe was by Wilder and Curtis. Um, in later years, however, both Wilder and Curtis would speak of Monroe with a recognition that no matter how aggravating she could be, she was instrumental in the pop- enduring popularity of one of the true milestones in their career. Um, what do you see as Monroe's greatest contribution to the film? Um, I mean, she's sort of, it's like they kind of manage this sort of force of nature that they kind of captured on screen. Um, you know, you know, what can you say? There's just nothing like her, probably in some ways has never been, even when you think about, you know, modern day, you know, whatever you want to call them, female stars or even modern day, quote unquote, sex symbols. I mean, she's just a force of nature. You know, there's, you know, stories about in the, uh, the scene uh, where she's wearing, uh, uh, gosh, the, uh, the very almost sheer dress with the spotlight and, you know, she had put a little bit of weight on, and I know there were issues with pregnancies lost and whatnot, um, and Arthur Miller, and they were trying to have a baby and whatnot, but they can't get that dress closed. The dress is basically open. You can see it when she turns. The dress is open, and it's pretty sheer to begin with, and she's falling out of it, and they've got that spotlight there, and it's this interesting dance of the spotlight sort of trying to get down, but by the way, her also trying to get up if you actually if you watch the sequence which is quite amazing um and there's just you know the 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 camera you know as they say can't get enough of her and you don't that's not every performer in the world and uh it's just uh it's something you know insane and i don't know i'm not trying to forgive them for their comments which obviously were hurtful to her and whatnot at the time i'm not sure they necessarily knew that they would be quoted till the end of time yeah. that you know the whole it's kissing hitler thing because wilder was very well, clear tell them, the, tell them what the kissing hitler thing oh was. i mean there was tony curtis sort of talk you know people would talk to him about you know the scenes on the boat with him pretending it's having no effect and you know people would say that you know over and over like that must have been the most incredible scene you ever done or whatever and he sort of likened it to kissing hitler and needless to say I don't think that was true. It's just a guess. No, I think that'd be going um, a little but, too far. You know, and I, you know, look, I, I get you understand sort of like she would be late to set, and that would be frustrating to any 
producer, director, director, writer, co-star, any of those things that, you know, and the rumored that, you know, they, you know, she was also, uh, what's the word, you know, she was also studying the method with uh, Stella Adler and that whole thing. And so there's, you know, stories of like her demanding to do like 50 plus takes of the scene coming in to grab the water bottle at the end when she's sad. And again, all probably somewhat frustrating, but Wilder was the first to say, you know, when he was doing, I think even things like Irma LaDuce later, his first thought was to go to Marilyn Monroe, that whatever, whatever difficulties there were, the price was worth, worth every penny. And again, I, I don't think Irma LaDuce is a very enjoyable film, but you do have to take four seconds and think to yourself, what if that had been Marilyn Monroe? And it's a, probably a very different, maybe more interesting movie, dare I say, not to dump on Irma LaDuce, but you can understand why the price was always worth it. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a follow-up question on stars and performance style, how do you write for a talented performer who will take something great and funny on the page but bring their own sensibilities to the performance, which well, I'm sure you do this because you it's work a, with it's such a, It's a really actors. lucky thing. I mean, I will simply say, for you know, at some part of my career, you know, I was writing stuff and always thinking to myself, you know, again, the writer's ego, thinking to myself that when I wrote it down on the page, you know, and heard it in my head, that that was the best performance of it I would ever see. Um, and one of the wonderful things about Seinfeld for me in my career was it sort of broke me of that, which was to say, no matter how good I thought it could be, you know, that foursome would do things that I didn't think, um, you know, that I didn't necessarily think that that's how you do it. Like, that's the word you hit in the sentence. They would hit a different word. Um, and it just really opened things up. And, you know, when you get to something like Veep, the wonderful thing there is, is that, you know, as I try and sort of write a scene and think to myself, like, well, this will be really impossible. You know, I want her to be sad and slightly happy and a little bit vain and also really angry. And it's sort of like, here you go, Julia, go do this. And then she does it. And of course, I just look really good. That's, that's, that's the, the secret of Veep is uh, you all think I'm quite the writer and director. And the reason, of course, is because I get Julie Louis-Dreyfus. So it does become that thing. And certainly you see it with you know, Wilder and especially with Jack Lemmon, where he sort of, you just kind of go, okay, I'll work with this guy for the rest of my life, much yes. in the way you know, I'll happily show up wherever Julia wants me to show up for the rest of mine, because... Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I want that opportunity to kind of, whatever I craft, she's only going to make it better. And that when we work together, you know, I can go out there and kind of, you know, you know, both because of our familiarity with each other, sort of offer, you know, hopefully directorial assistance, but also, you know, come up with these sort of complicated situations that I can only, I get excited to sort of see what she'll do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, before we open up to the audience, I have one uh, last question. It's kind of big, so you can pick any part of it that you want. Um, And it kind of returns us to the beginning with the question of what what elements of Wilder's comedy has been most influential on your own writing, and what episode or sequence are you especially proud of that you think kind of evokes the sensibility of something like Some Like It Hot? Oh, boy. I said it was big. Yeah. Sorry about Um, that. I don't... uh, Again, I, I keep I do come back to the speed tremendously, uh, and what I will say is, and I, this is not a, a, a full answer, but there are times with, you know, like like with Veep episodes, I'll specifically say, um, and then I'll I'll get to maybe a comedy answer where I can tell you, you know, we're taking these episodes that are coming in and clocking in where the rough cuts are clocking in. 
you know, closing in on 50 minutes and our, our, our runtime in, in a perfect world on HBO is 2830. So, you know, you're talking, you know, you know, 20 minutes plus of cutting. And a lot of times, and I've sort of learned this over the years, you know, especially if there's a guest director, you know, their instinct in their director's cut is you got to cut this story, you got to cut this story out, whatever. And what I've found, and some of this goes back to my training with, with Larry on, uh, on Seinfeld is, you can really, you can really like mush it down. You can really shove the sausage into the casing. And, you know, my first sort of thing is to go through and really cut, you start cutting the extraneous lines where if you can get, you know, for lack of a better word, 30 seconds out of every scene, before you know it, those 20 minutes do start to go away, but it's starting to fire like this. And so I, I, when, I, when I think about that, I think wilder. Um, you know, I'll go back to a sequence um, in one of my favorite episodes of Seinfeld that I ever wrote, which was uh, the Bizarro Jerry. Um, and it was sort of based on uh, the, con- the concept of Bizarro Superman, who was Superman's opposite. Um, and in the episode, Elaine is dating this very nice guy, and they begin to refer to him as Bizarro Jerry because he's sort of Jerry's opposite. He's sort of kind where Jerry isn't, helpful, does errands, these different things. Um, and there's a sequence where you sort of have to explain what, because we're explaining it to the audience, but in the show, Jerry is explaining the concept of Bizarro Superman to uh, to Elaine. So she stands in as sort of for the audience so that we can explain this concept because you can't assume everybody was reading DC Comics in the 60s. Um, and it's basically this very quick run of where, and they're talking somewhat quickly to begin with, but Jerry sort of is explaining. It's like he's Bizarro Jerry, huh? Like Bizarro Superman, Superman's exact opposite from, you know, the, the backwards universe. And he says, he says, you know, up is down, down is up. He says hello when he leaves, goodbye when he arrives. And now Elaine starts questioning it. Shouldn't say bad bye no and then she goes does he live underwater no and then he she says is he black and he says no and I guess what I love about that and I sort of think about Wilder a lot is there's a lot of speed there there's a lot of wordplay because you're already in that bizarre world of hello goodbye bad bye is the opposite of goodbye and then she starts extrapolating shouldn't he be underwater because we're above water shouldn't he be underwater and then you sort of get a, a joke that sort of discusses a little bit of race. The Superman is white. Should Bizarro Superman be black? Should Bizarro Jerry? Whatever. Um, and so you're sort of dealing with something that obviously people don't necessarily want to laugh at by definition. You know, it's very difficult to get anybody to like sort of smile at a joke that deals with race because the the the, the natural instinct is the how dare you. Um, and I, so to get sort of a laugh out of that is the kind of thing I think uh, Billy Wilder would have appreciated. I'm sure he so, would. There's a half answer. <laughs> So the first question, we're going to give it to the Facebook group, and then we open it up to the people who actually came. Yep. Um, so the first comes from uh, Joe from New York, who asks um, if you could talk about the sort of the, the timing of like one, two, three. Um, so I mean, uh, you know, sort of a little tough to talk about. Have, has anyone, have people here seen one, two, three? Are people familiar with one, two, three? Just curious. Okay, so some, excellent. Um, I mean, dare I say, if you think some like it hot is fast, one, two, three is maybe even faster. In fact, um, the, the legend goes that um, uh, the, the uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, 
Which one? Of the, uh, the lead, sorry. Uh, yes, uh, Cagney had a heart attack because of <laughs> learning the script 2, 1, 2, 3 and the performance of it. And they had to shut down for a couple of months while he recovered. Um, the movie also, again, sets up a lot of things similar to Some Like It Hot and they all sort of play off in this sort of insane end sequence where Cagney is trying to turn his communist charge into a capitalist lord and it plays out and the speed is just is just fantastic and again i point to um you know the the seinfeld speed um uh of just sort of again that breakneck pace the same with curb the same with veep where we don't care if you're missing jokes much in the way i think wilder didn't care you'll catch it on your second viewing and the best thing anybody says to me about a veep episode is that they had to watch it a second time or that they had to stop it on their playback and go back um we had a joke we did a screening um last year we did an episode of veep we were screening it um for the Academy, uh, it's something, you know, and then we did a, a Q&A afterwards. And these things happen every year for sort of the Emmy stuff. You invite people to come see the episode. Um, and we did this episode where um, uh, there was this part where, um, uh, oh, uh, it was Selena was going for her portrait um, and she was renewing her relationship with Tom James. And there was a whole bunch of stuff. And there was this great thing where, um, at some point or another, she's upset that Tom James is going to be coming to the thing. And uh, Tony, who plays Gary, her sort of, uh, you know, body man factotum, basically goes, you know, wanting to basically say, do you want me to, uh, you know, do you want me to get rid of him? And he, ba- and of course, doesn't, is, loses sort of his terminology. And he goes, do you want me to 69 him? And she, of course sort of is taken aback and then realizes what he means, 86 him, and whatever. And the laugh was so deafening, in a good way, off of those lines, that there was then a really funny line that the audience missed. And it was really sad to me, um, because uh, what the line was is she goes, oh, it never, she's sort of angry at like sort of what she feels like are all the, hu- the humiliations dumped on her. And she says, oh, it never ends. It's like, uh, it's like African-American History Month. Um, and the line was completely missed by the audience from laughing at that. And what was so funny was, obviously, we couldn't stop and go back and show the line. And of course, at the end of the screening, very excited. And of course, I, I see Julia. And the first things out of our mouths are that was a great screening except they missed that one line which of course bothers her and me very deeply which is why you know she's so great um anyway it's it's funny you say that because we we showed uh, just a little bit ago we showed to be or not to be lubitsch okay? yep and also uh, speed yeah, boy speed yeah um, but there's the great and i was sitting in this audience here it was a you know pretty packed audience and the scene near the beginning when carol lombard's talking to jack benny and you know he's always you know He's always taking credit. He says, I'm afraid if I, you know, if I cough, you're, I don't know, the back and forth. But eventually she says, if I ever had a, a baby, I would be, you know, I'd be surprised if I was the mother. And everyone's laughing so hard, they missed the next line, which is Benny. Well, I'd be satisfied to be the father. Um, but, you know, and there's a lot of yeah. moments like that where, and I, watching it, you know, in a, in a, in a proper theater, with, you could see how, a lot would get lost, so you would you do need to. You are you are losing stuff, but also but what it's based on, I think, is a fundamental, and I think this speaks well of Wilder, and I, again, some of the shows that I've been uh, very proud to work on, which is not taking the audience for granted and sort of allowing the treating the audience sort of like 
you know, in a perfect world, the smart people they are, and not worrying about trying to spoon feed it and understanding that they will either come back or they will fight to hear it or they'll figure it out, as opposed to stopping and over explaining and whatever, you know, that you obviously see a lot of times in sort of less good films and television. Certainly not yeah. comedy, that's like the Waltons. <laughs> Anyways, um, are there other questions in the audience? Did you ever meet Wilder? Hi, Dave. How are you? Good. Did you ever meet Wilder? I didn't. Uh, I had heard rumor that he had had an office on Little Santa Monica, and I, and, and I used to go to uh, Kate Mandolini's, and I guess he used to eat there. That was sort of his little cantina a little bit, uh, the one uh, you know, on, on Wilshire. That I guess he went there, ate there a lot, and I guess I almost saw him once, missed him. Uh, and I don't know, I, I'm always never that guy that thinks to like, I should ask my idiot agents or any of that kind of stuff. And then of course they die and I regret it immensely. I have managed to, um, I've tracked down, I have an incredible six sheet of one, two, three, and then I have a really nice, um, uh, uh, some like it hot poster that he, uh, I.L. Diamond, uh, Lemon, and Curtis have all signed. I, that's as close as I get, yeah. He used to hang out at the same table with Mr. Charles. Oh, okay, that makes sense too, yeah. And years ago, I guess he auctioned off his art and like was at, like, at those auctions. I think that was before I got to L.A. So he was around, and I probably there was probably some way of doing it, and I didn't. Hi. Hi. Uh, opening sequence, the police chase with the cops in the car, Reminiscent of the Keystone Cops. Was that on purpose, do you think? I mean, I guess a little bit in terms of you, like the, the, the speed. Are you talking about the way that? The shot, yeah. The way yeah, it I, guess, I mean, the guy's hanging off the car. I think there's a similarity, though, to that sort of how action was sort of shot a little bit at the time. Because I, I think they were trying to be pretty straight. You know, they really, I think... Mm. I mean, I know we can sort of go, is that supposed to be funny with them hanging off the car? But I don't think he meant, again, who knows, but I don't think he meant it that way. I think the revelation is really supposed to be when you open it up and it's the booze, that that's supposed to be, if you will, the first joke or at least sort of the first moment of what's going, you know, what's going on here. I think at least. I can't prove it. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Hello. Um... I was wondering, as a writer, if you're ever worried about offending people too much, or if you used to be and you're not anymore. Because I, I, you know, believe me, you can like really pre- feel free to use these words at my trial. But no, I, I, I'm not. And obviously, um, obviously, increasingly, these things, you know. It's interesting, we go in waves, and you know, it seems like a couple of years ago, um, there was some huge, you know, there, there was sort of the, the, the political correctness movement, and then there was the backlash on that, and it sort of seems like we're kind of, you know, looping back around a little bit. Um, I will say this, you know, to this room and to the, the Facebook audience, my mentor, the person who brought me in and hired me at Saturday Night Live is Al Franken. Um, and I'm quite close to him, and obviously he is going through what he's going through. Um, and I've spoken to him for a minute just to say hello and let him know I'm thinking about him. But uh, I'm happy to argue it to whatever extent anybody wants to argue it. Um, uh, the thing with the photo, that's a joke. We don't have to argue it's a good joke. It was an attempt at a joke. He's not touching her. Again, this is me speaking. These are not his words. He's not touching her. It's not a, the best joke in the world, but 
he was trying something. Um, I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here, uh, but in my mind, everything is fair game. Everything is an attempt at anything. I'm a I'm a Jew from New York. I'm a fat Jew from New York, but I'll be the first to make a fat joke, a Holocaust joke, what have you, because I don't. Um, well, my kids are there. I was about to say F and care, but so F and care. I, I, there, to me, nothing. There is nothing that is not permissible, and I don't. And to me, the ability to laugh at it is how we begin to sort of solve some of these issues. That's my take on it, and I will go to the grave thinking that. I may not work, but I'll go to the grave um, thinking that. And, that. and that, in fact, is the legacy of Lubitsch and Wilder. And I, yeah, I don't believe they quite cared either. No. <laughs> Uh, hi. hi. Uh, one of the things that, that I like the, the best about Billy Wilder's characters is that he likes them all, uh, and he doesn't judge them, right? I mean, he goes from from prostitutes to pimps to, you know, uh, the highs coward, and the lows, yes. cowards, you know, everything. Um, and uh, uh, possibly because of his past, which he talked about, his you know sexual compromises or something. And and I'm wondering. Do you have characters that you favor? I mean, in other words, what do you do with the characters you do not like? Or do you have any? And how do you well, treat them? Well, I mean, them? I have characters, and again, I, you know, I'm, with Veep, for example, uh, I was very lucky enough, I, just to, I always like to make sure that I, I say this, because it's, I do think it's important. The show was created by Armando Iannucci, and I took it over. I was very lucky enough to take it over. And he created these wonderful, flawed characters, and I always find it fascinating, you know, that people love them so much, but some of them are, you know, Selena can be pretty despicable in her own right, but certainly, for example, the character of Jonah, do you, if you watch Veep, is horrible. I mean, he is awful. He is probably racist, vaguely anti-Semitic, certainly anti-woman. And so he is awful, but I embrace that awfulness to sort of have fun with it. And in some ways, as the most awful character, you often sometimes wait for him to come into the room or you're, you're that much more excited when he comes into the room to add his awful take to the proceedings. And yet he is the worst character. So I guess I... Again, I didn't create him, but I sort of, I love his awfulness, and I certainly don't judge it. I was watching uh, Veep with my husband, and he said something about the Jonah character. Oh, that's the guy who becomes president. Well, I'm not saying, it, it, it certainly is certainly more likely these days. <laughs> is there a story to the Cary Grant impression of, you know, that choice of him being, you know, the rich man? Curtis doing the Cary Grant. Thing I mean, or? I just I don't know any. I don't know where it came from. I do think again, it sort of speaks to you know a little bit of that, you know, with Billy Wilder as sort of the outsider who loves American cinema, and so again, you know, I, I put it in there with some of the other jokes in there, and again, this sort of brilliant sort of again, you can sort of Easter egg, although it's a full performance where I think you can laugh at it and enjoy it if you have no idea who Cary Grant is, because there's an L element of this sort of funny rich guy voice and yet obviously if you do you're enjoying it that much more and of course you get that extra joke of nobody talks like that which is obviously the extra joke if you know what it is but if you don't know what it is it's not bothering you you're not liking the movie less and that's a great joke or a great sort of inside reference and certainly again with veep we'll often try and do sort of make sort of political jokes where or do stories where if you don't know that we're referencing so for example last year um 
I don't know, you know, we did something last year with, uh, there was a whole blow up on the Yale campus about uh, where students were screaming at the, 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 the deans of the houses over what was seen as this offensive letter about Halloween costumes. And there was this sort of viral video. And we sort of did our take of it. And you don't have to know that video to enjoy our scene because it's a classic sort of Selena getting herself into trouble with these undergrads thinking they're on her side and then they start screaming at her. So you can enjoy it in and of itself. However, if you know the Yale story, then you'll kind of say to yourself somewhere, oh God, they're kind of recreating that moment. So you get, you get those things. Um, someone asks, can you talk about how comedy fits in its particular moment? Historically, I think is what their question means. Um, hmm. How it fits oh, with its particular historical moment. In it? With it? Um, I mean, look, you know, with Veep right now, you know, when the show started, obviously it's always been sort of, you know, with what, you know, it's obviously always had something to say about politics. Then you have something like Donald Trump winning, and look, it's an interesting sort of balance where I can sit here and tell you that me, David Mandel, um, I voted and gave money to Hillary Clinton, was disappointed when she lost. Uh, I believe uh, he is slowly destroying the country and ruining it for years to come with what he's doing. You don't have to agree with it or not. When we write Veep, however, we go out of our way to make the show nonpartisan. We never discuss what party any of the people are in. People are simply in the other party. If you look at maps we do in the show, we mix red and blue up. That There's no anything like that. And quite honestly, in terms of policy, Selena dances around various policies and policy groups that don't align her one way or another. She can be talking pro-abortion, against guns, and these things mixed together. Um, at the same time, though, because of, I think, the Trump presidency, people have turned to Veep in a little bit in terms of like, this is our solace, this is our break, we're looking at you to sort of poke fun. And again, we're not going to specifically do moments, we're not doing parodies of Trump. There's never going to be the rich millionaire character running. However, you'll see elements of Trump in Jonah, you'll see elements of Trump in Selena. So, you know, we sort of have got this extra burden as people, I think, look towards us for political comedy, and yet we don't want to be overwhelmed by the specific moment and be doing jokes about individual things that people are saying or lines of dialogue where, you know, certainly if nothing else, were we to do a joke about whatever Trump says this week, by the time it airs, you know, a year from now, that's a stale old joke. So that, uh, that reason alone is why we're not going to do specific lines of dialogue, but rather try and look at bigger picture things and talk about, you know, maybe why there are these sort of anti-intellectual moments, why people are against science and embracing sort of other things. I think you can have a lot of fun. Something we're playing with right now is the whole what about moment, what aboutism, where, yes, you are a rapist, sir. Yeah, but what about this guy who parked his car badly? So I think you can kind of do those kinds of things without specifically doing Trump and sort of embrace the time you sort of are living in. I hope that's an answer for Facebook. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming out on Sunday. And let's please join thanking David Mendoza. Oh, thank you. It was really fun. Thank you.
Great. A blast. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.